All right, let me invite you, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. If you have no idea where Malachi is, perhaps you know where Matthew is. Turn to Matthew and then just turn back a couple of pages and you will find Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. I would say to you to take out your program. You've got a place here, a nice big open spot. Uh, I want to say, I, I have struggled over this last week to know exactly how to say what I believe God wants me to say this morning to you. But I want you to understand that title, when it's hard to be devoted to God, shouldn't have a question mark at the end. When it's hard to be devoted to God? That was just simply a a mistype from having changed the title so many times. But even at that, I I want to assign that title loosely because I believe that God has some things... Uh, to say to us. Now, I think it's providential. I think it's providential that we found our way to Malachi on this, the first Sunday of the Advent season. Advent is that time of year that we look forward to the coming of Christ, that we prepare for, uh, for Christmas Day, for the day uh, that Christ came. And so how, how much more appropriate could it be that we find ourselves in this, the last book of the Old Testament, that perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament sets the stage for the coming of Christ. And you, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you will have been able to see how that stage has been setting, how God has been saying to His people time and time again, you You are in sin. Apart from me, you don't have hope, but I am sending one. I am sending one who will be the fulfillment of all of my promises to you. Malachi, perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament, sets that stage. Now, so it's appropriate that here we are at the Advent season looking at Malachi. And beginning tomorrow, I want to invite you and your family to go to the church website because during this Advent season, I'm going to be uh, posting there devotions for your family to help walk you through this season. So my encouragement to you would be take those each morning, take those each day, sometime. If, If you're single, if you're alone, walk through them yourself. If you have a family, walk through them together as a family so that as we draw close to this Christmas season, we would be drawing close to the one that it's about. We would be preparing our hearts uh, for its coming. And then beginning next Sunday, as we begin to move in that direction, we're going to begin a new series in the book of John where we're going to prepare our hearts for exactly who Jesus is. Not, not who, did we, who do we think that he was, not who his tradition told us that he is, but who did he himself proclaim himself to be because perhaps more than any other book we see in John Jesus saying I am this I am this and he defines very clearly for us exactly who and what he was and so we'll begin that next Sunday but if you have been with us through this series as we have been walking through the minor prophets as we have been seeing all that God has been doing in his people in this period before Christ came If you were with us for a long time, you would remember back that God was saying to his people, God was very upset with his people because he was saying to them, you have sinned and punishment is coming because of that. And there would be some words of hope. But it was primarily God's 
punishment and his justice and his judgment on them with a few words of hope. That was the Israel before the captivity into Babylon, before all that God was warning them about. And if you've been with us for the last two weeks, you would have seen in Haggai and Zechariah, you would have seen that the tone changes. They're predominantly books of hope with some correction in there. Because these are the people that God has led out of Babylon. These are the faithful ones. These are the committed ones. These are the ones that have come back. And so God is saying to them, yes, and I'm going to complete this work that you've started here. I'm going to send one who's going to complete all of it. But in the meantime, you've got these things you need to work on. And perhaps over the last two weeks as we looked at that, especially if you have some basic understanding of the New Testament, of the stage onto which Jesus walked, you might have made the connection to say, but how did we get from there? How did we get from the time of Haggai and Zechariah to the time of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? How do we get from a a remnant of God's people who were committed to him, who were passionate about him, who were walking with him, to a day where the people were religious, but nominally so? They were committed to their ritual, but there was no passion. There was no sincerity in their worship. That Jesus could walk onto that stage, the very one that Zechariah and Haggai spoke of, and they wouldn't recognize him because they were so wrapped up in their own traditions and their own ways that they wouldn't see him for who he was. How did we get there? How did we move from one place to the next? Malachi is writing about a hundred years after the last two books we looked at. About a hundred years. There's a, there's a saying among pastors, at least, that the first generation accepts the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and the third generation rejects the gospel. By and large, that's true, but time alone is not the only culprit here. It's not just the passing of generations. There are things that Haggai identified that God, working through Malachi identified and put his finger on that laid the foundation for the world into which Jesus would step when his own would reject him and they would not see him for what he was. So time alone is not enough. Malachi is writing in a time when the temple has been rebuilt The walls have been rebuilt. Everything that they've been working on is done and the people have settled in. Now, why is this book important to us? Why should you care on this cold Sunday morning what Malachi has to say at all? Why should you bother listening over the next few minutes? Few is a loose word. Here's why you should care. Here's why it's important to you. Because it is a warning. This book is a warning of the things that dull the heart towards God. The things that destroy a spiritual legacy. Some of you have been laying a spiritual legacy for your children. Perhaps you're the first in that generation. Perhaps you're the third in that generation. I don't know, but you've been laying a spiritual legacy 
Malachi is all about the things that destroy, that kill a spiritual legacy. Perhaps you have had a time in your past when you were passionate about God and that passion and devotion towards God is starting to wane. Malachi is about the things that would kill your passion for God. Outwardly, you may still appear to be devoted to God. After all, I'm talking to the people that got up on Thanksgiving weekend in the cold and came to church. I understand that. You are the committed. I get that, right? Or the ones that don't have family that loves you and invited you to come. I don't know. But either way, I'm going to choose to believe that you are the committed ones. But you can look that way on the outside. Jesus' day was a very religious day. The world that Malachi is speaking to them. And they were a very religious people. Malachi is all about what kills your spiritual passion for God. Why should we care as a church? As a church, we should care about Malachi. Because Malachi is all about why churches die. Not, not in the days when there's two or three there and they're deciding whether or not they can pay the bills to keep the doors open. But every time you drive through our communities, there, there's somewhere between 20 and 30 churches for sale in Rensselaer County right now. Those churches died long before they found themselves in that place. Long before. So what kills a church? And all of these things. Now... In four more Sundays, we're going to celebrate our ninth anniversary as a church. Four more Sundays, it will be nine years. And people often ask me, what are your plans for the church? What are your goals? What are your plans? Where do you, where, where do you see this going? Now, when we were going through church planting training to plant this church 10 years ago, 11 years ago, before, uh, before we actually started, before we reached that first day, what they meant by that was, what do you want to see happen in the short term? What are you going to make your church about? What's the niche going to be? What's your, you know, almost as if I'm marketing to you Coca-Cola or Pepsi or something else. That was largely what we talked about there, unfortunately. And people now will ask me, what's your plan for the church? And what they mean is, are you going to build a building sometime soon? Are you going to add on programs that my family or my children want? Are you going to go in the direction that I want you to go? And what I often will say to people, and some of you have heard me say this before, uh, we have a 100-year plan at this church. Yeah, I've I've got goals for this next year. Don't don't get me wrong. You're going to hear some of them. I've got goals. I know where I, what I want to see happen in the next year. I know some of the things I want to see happen in the next five years. But, I, but, but our, our plan is 100 years. I want in 2104, if I can do simple math. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. 2104. I want a body of people, whether there are genealogical descendants, that are at least our spiritual descendants. To be in this area, I pray we're not in this building, but in this area, I don't think this building is going to make it 100 years, but in this area, I'm not sure it's going to make it to next week some weeks, but in this area that it would be a a place where they glorify God, where they lift up the gospel to the community, that's what I want. 
That's what we talk about when the elders get together and we try to talk about where are we going. We're not focused on necessarily where are we going next year. We're focused on what needs to happen for us to dig our roots down deep so that a hundred years from now, this church is what it needs to be. There are cheap ways we could fill seats. But you're mortgaging your future by doing those things. You're not sinking roots down deep. But what are some of the things that are going to prevent us from those things happening. So let me ask it again. How do we get from Zechariah where Yahweh God proclaims, look, I have returned to my people with mercy. That's what God says to his people in Zechariah. Look, I've returned to my people with mercy. How do we get from there to the place in Luke's gospel where we see Jesus looking at the very same city and weeping? Because they didn't know him when they saw him. And they didn't know how to come to peace with God. How does it happen? How does a church die? How does a legacy die? How does a passion for God die? Well, there's really simply three very easy steps that I want to talk to you about this morning. Three simple steps that lead us to a place where our passion for God dies. Our church dies. A legacy dies. The first thing that we're going to see in this book is this. The first way that these things die is just simply by bringing down God's gospel. By bringing down the gospel. Now, this past week, Sotheby's Auction House, where I go to buy all of my things. I don't know if you shop at Walmart. I go to Sotheby's. They sold a book for $14 million. is one of 11 copies that exist. It's called the Bay Psalm Book. It was published in 1640 in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It is a copy of the Book of Psalms, and it's not a particularly good copy. The book is falling apart, but that's the least of its problems. There are so many typographical and grammatical errors in this book that it's hard to even understand. But it sold for $14 billion. $14 million. $14 million. Why? Modern economics tells me that something is worth only what someone is willing to pay for it. And that's partly true. That's partly true. Somebody was willing to pay $14 million for this book. A book that, frankly, you can take your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take the Pew Bible there. That Bible cost this church about $15. You can open it to the middle of that book, and you can find a better copy of the book of Psalms than you could find there. But somebody spent $14 million to have an old, bad copy of the book of Psalms. Do I understand it? As someone who loves history, of course I understand it. Modern economics says it's worth that because somebody's willing to pay it. And that's partly true and it's also partly not true. Modern economics says that things don't have intrinsic worth. But God says of the gospel that it has worth. Not because we assign it worth, but because he has assigned it worth. But because he has said, this is my riches for you. Because he has said 
This is the power of God. This is my power unto your salvation. I do all of this through the gospel. But you find yourself, you may find yourself in the same place that in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2, that these people in Jerusalem find themselves... I would invite you to look in your, in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible open, I encourage you to open it. You will benefit more by looking at God's Word as we look through it. God makes a statement. And one way that you could map out the book of Malachi is by looking to the questions that people ask back to God when God speaks. And I want you to understand... That when they ask those questions, these are not sincere questions, these are accusations. And so much of the way that we're going to walk through this book is, we're going to be looking at the questions they ask back to God. Because it's clearly what Malachi intended for us to see here as he structures his book. But look at what God says in chapter 1 verse 2. He makes a statement, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord says Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I have loved you. And he uses the very name that he gave them when he expressed his love for them. But look what they say. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? What are they doing? They're bringing down the very gospel through which they came into a relationship with God. Look, why why do I say that? Look what God says in response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated What is he saying here? I would take you to Romans chapter 9. It will be up on the screen, but you can write it down so that you could see what Paul to the Romans said of this very thing. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Let me stop there for a second. Those of you that are here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what Paul would say to you in Romans chapter 9 is, it's not because of what you did. It's not that you were smart enough to choose God. It's not that you were better than most and good enough to choose God. That God looked down and said, look, I like him. She's awful righteous. I'm going to choose them. But no, God himself simply said, this is one I am going to save. Look, continue. That's when we talk about election, that's what we're we're talking about. That God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, not because of what you and I do, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there justice on God's part? Is, this, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's response to them when they say, How have you loved me, God? You haven't loved me. Is to say, I chose you. 
I gave you my covenant name. I gave you access to me. How can you say how have I loved you when I chose you? Not because of what you did, but in spite of what you did. How does our passion for God begin to die? How does a legacy die? It's because we lose sight of what the gospel is. Two chapters later in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For, he has known the, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying here again to the Romans, he's saying, look, this is the gospel. How has God loved you? They're going to say later in the book, but God, we followed after you and we thought it was going to mean that we were going to have our every desire. How has God loved you? Does God love you even if you've lost your health? Does God love you even if you can't afford that vacation you were wanting to have? Does God love you even if there aren't going to be any gifts under the Christmas tree? Does God love you even if there hasn't been a reconciliation with that family member you just saw on Thanksgiving? See, when we conclude that God does not love us adequately, what we have done is brought down the very gospel because the gospel says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we might be His children. So whatever else is true, whatever else God gives me in this world is nothing in light of what He has given me in giving me eternal life. So, how does your passion for God begin to die? Because you lose sight of what God did for you in Jesus Christ by sending Him to the cross for your sin. And you start to look at those little things, those little tiny things in your life that are not as you would wish them to be. And you begin to say, Sure, God, you gave me eternal life, but you didn't give me this... vacation. You didn't give me that raise, so what's that compared to this? And Paul says, that? That is the riches of God. What is this in comparison to that? How does a church die? By ceasing to make the gospel the main thing. Some of you undoubtedly will come to this church and you wonder why we talk about the gospel so much. Because the gospel is everything. It impacts every area of your life. And may it be that a hundred years from now, it would be impossible to come in here on a Sunday morning and not hear the gospel in some way. Second thing that happens, we bring down the gospel. And number two, we bring down God's majesty. We bring down God's majesty. Look at verse 6. This is God speaking. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? 
And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? I want you to look just below this. I want you to look at verse 11. Verse 11 in so many ways is the heart of this book. If you would understand the book of Malachi, understand verse 11. Verse 11 says this. It is God again speaking. He says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to understand, there is no caveat in that. He doesn't say, my name will be great if you guys will get in line. He says, my name will be great. He is not making a demand on you. He is sending to you an invitation. Will you participate in it? Because this is what I'm about, God is saying. This is what I'm about. I'm about my name being made great among all the nations. And you can participate in that. I want you to participate in that. It is a statement of what is, not a statement of what could be. It's not a request nor a demand, but simply a statement of reality. Is God right to demand His glory? We talk about this. His glory is not something that we create, but something we participate in. It's not a demand of an insecure God but an invitation. He's not saying, I need you to glorify me. He's saying, all of creation does glorify me and one day will. And you can choose to participate in it because I am. I want you to see, and this has been difficult for me, I have ignored it. It's been true in other books of the Bible. I've not ignored it because I would ignore its truth, but because... I knew that Malachi hit it more heavily than any others. What's the problem? Where does it start? Where does it begin? I would say to you, he makes very clear that the problem is not first in the pews. We don't have pews, but you know what I mean. But in the pulpit. The problem is not first and foremost with the sheep. It's with the shepherds. There are so many things that discourage me when I spend time among pastors and elders and church leaders. I'm concerned about what it says when you walk into a church and you see Starbucks. As if we're saying to you, come here. Because we have that thing that you want. You'll like God better here because you can have Starbucks while we talk to you about God. I'm not talking about coffee here. Understand me. I'm talking about what's being conveyed to you. Come in here because we think about what you want here. I would laugh if I didn't want to cry every time, and I hear many times 
of pastors entering onto the stage on a zip line or riding a motorcycle or preaching from a canoe or from a boxing rink or God help me, whatever else they think of that they think people are going to find entertaining, it infuriates me. It concerns me that the modern picture of an evangelical pastor is someone who is hip-dressing, coarse-talking, entertaining. He's the coolest guy in the room. Malachi, perhaps more than Christ, points to John the Baptist. The least cool guy in any room. But what it says about John the Baptist, look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. The one that when John is in prison, that Jesus is going to say to John's disciples, when you went out to find John, did you go out to find the cool guy? You went out to find a very strange man. I, one of my heroes in the faith is a man named John Piper, who you may or may not have heard of. I heard somebody describe him this week, and they said that when they met him, they were impressed by a few things. They were impressed that his tweed jacket looked like it was decades old. They were impressed that he couldn't even match his belt to his shoes. Brown belt, black shoes. When you read about C.S. Lewis and you read about a man who had food stains on his lapel, this person that was describing his meeting with John Piper said he had the look of a man that the world had nothing to offer him. When I think about God's words in this book against the shepherds, I think of our day. Is it any wonder that God's presence is gone and that God would say, as He does in Malachi, that we have wearied Him with our words? We bring down God's majesty. I want you to see how that happens I want you to look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and of peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's what the shepherds are supposed to be. May it be that a hundred years from now, somebody could walk into whatever is then called Emmanuel Church and hear a word from God, instruction from their life. But look, verse 8, 
but you have turned aside from the way. And what's worse, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Why am I taking the time to address this point this morning rather than preaching it in the mirror? Because there are some of you that sit in this room this morning that are shepherds in this church. Some of you that are elders. Some of you that are leaders in other ways. There are some of you in this church, I have no doubt, that God is calling to be leaders, to point others to Him and His glory. There are some of you that are going to be that in your home. There are some of you that are going to be that in your workplace. And we must understand that God's majesty cannot be brought down. The world will never come to the church because the church is the coolest place to come to. As long as we try to ape the culture, all that we're going to be is really lame and about two steps behind, which is what we've been now for about the last 40 or 50 years. As long as someone stands up front or somebody leads a Bible study or somebody instructs others in such a way that they would look to them and say, what a great man, what a great woman she is. We've lost sight of the glory of God. The the mission is to say, here is our God. Here is His Word. Here's how you walk in it. And, And always the pointing goes to Him and to His glory. But if we want to kill our passion for God, if we want to kill our church, let's just simply remove the idea that we no longer exist for the glory of God. Let's make Him not the subject of our every conversation, of our every encounter. And we take one more step down the path. Thirdly, how do we take these steps? Number three, we bring down God's offering. We bring down God's offering. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Just before it, in verse 6. God has just said to the priest... He has described him as those who despise my name. But they respond, how have we despised your name? And God says, by offerings polluted, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By sacrificing that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is, not, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? What is he saying to us? 
We don't live in the time of the temple. We don't bring in animals to be sacrificed. We live in a day that we look back to the Jesus who came to pay the ultimate sacrifice. So what does it mean for us? Why has he preserved it for us today so that we might understand? Because if we want to take this third step down towards killing our passion for God, towards killing a church, killing a legacy, we simply need to bring down God's offering. How do we diminish our offering to God, first we do this. We offer to God that which is less than first and best. There's a principle that runs all throughout Scripture of priority and prominence when it comes to what we offer to God. If you leave this place today and you go home, And one of you in the family has prepared a nice meal. And you are having over an honored guest. Your boss. Somebody else. Someone that you really respect. And it comes time to sit down at the meal. Or maybe this happened at Thanksgiving. You you, you had someone in that was not a part of the family that you were excited to have there. Did you make them sit at the kiddie table? Or did you point them to the main table in the best seat? Did you serve them first? We all know what the answer is. The kiddies sit at the kiddie table. The honored guest sits at the head. How do we offer God less than our first and best? It means that. God is the afterthought, not the priority with our time, with our resources, with our finances. It means when we sit down to do our budget that the first thing we write down is not what we would return to the Lord. But generally it's the last, if it's there at all. Secondly, we serve with weariness. We serve with weariness. And the implication we're going to see is that when you serve God, that you think God is somehow now in your debt. That God should be satisfied. In a small church like ours, it's all hands on deck. That's how it happens. That's how ministry happens. It's all hands on deck all the time. I understand that. And if that's you and you're engaged in that way, I would caution you. Don't slip into a place that you begin to think that God is somehow now in your debt. That God somehow now owes you because of what you have done for him. I want you to look here. I want you to look at verses 13 and 14. God has just said to them, You should be lifting up my name. But look at their response. But you say, what a weariness this is. God, I'm tired of this. I'm tired. Isn't that enough? Haven't I done enough for you? What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you bring as, you, and you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Should I take that from you with such an attitude? 
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, gives us an important thing that we need to understand. Romans 12, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, he says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What does that tell me? That tells me if I give every ounce of my being to God, every penny that I have received, I give it to God. I squeeze myself out like a sponge completely in service for God. He still doesn't owe me anything more than what he has given me in Christ because when he gave me Christ, I understand that my life is no longer my own. Every moment, every minute that I have is His. So how do we bring down God's offering? We serve with weariness. We offer Him less than first and best. And number three, and we've touched on it briefly, we rob God with our finances. Look at chapter 3 quickly. Chapter 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Because you say, or I'm sorry, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is a hard Sunday for me to prepare for. I just want to say three caveats before I go further. And some of you, you're here for your first week, and maybe some of you bring in this baggage that you think, when I go to church, all that they talk about is money. We almost never talk about money here. Almost never. We talk about it only when Scripture leads us there, as it has today. I have gone to great lengths to not know what people give or don't give. I don't have a clue if you give to this church. And ultimately, my concern is not that you should give to this church. My concern is not for our bottom line. My concern is for your heart. This is not some hobby horse that I have that I like to talk about because if you give more, I get more. That's not the way it works around here. I also want to say, secondly, I want to say I'm not angry, disappointed, or discouraged. I don't want you to hear that in my voice in any way this morning I am, to the contrary, confident because God has always provided for His church. And thirdly, I am not ultimately concerned that giving goes up. 
If I wanted giving to go up, there are things that I could do so that giving could go up. I could guilt you. I could lay any number of things. I am concerned for our hearts as a church. I am concerned for what it says. Now, I know many Sundays you all will say to me, someone will say to me, it's cold in there. Can't you turn up the temperature? Or my wife, when she goes home, will look at the thermostat on the wall and say, it says 68, but it feels like it's 55. And she'll crank it up to 75, you know. How do you know what the temperature is? Well, you just go and you look. It says it right there on the side, 68 degrees. It's not about how I feel about it. It's about what, what it says. So what are three practical ways to check the spiritual temperature of a church? Here they are. Ready? Three questions. Are they serving faithfully? Is the church serving faithfully? Number two, are they giving sacrificially? And number three, are they responding repentantly? Now I want to say to you this morning, for those of you that are here and you're our guests, I would just ask you to understand you're in the middle of a family conversation for a moment. Okay? That's all that it is. I want to say to the rest of you as your pastor, I want to say that I am both encouraged and concerned. When I look at the last nine years and I look about where we're going, how do we get from here to a hundred years from now, I am both encouraged and concerned. I am encouraged to my very toes when I hear about what happened last Sunday afternoon. When I hear about the women going down with the Operation Christmas Child boxes. When I hear about we, the fact that we were falling short of our goal and some of our women not, didn't just stay for hours, they actually went out and purchased supplies to be able to fill enough boxes so that we could meet our goal. That encourages me not to my very, to, to my very heart, not because of the fact that we met our goal, but because these people wanted us to be able to minister to more children. That encourages me to no end. It encourages me that yesterday when I sent out a... a a request for need for men. Many men showed up. That encourages me. That when there was an opportunity to minister to another, they were there. I've been a member of churches that ran hundreds and hundreds of people that we couldn't have gotten a crowd like that together. I am encouraged by so many things in our church. But there are a few things that I'm concerned about. When you look at our 2014 budget, it is the first time in the history of our church that our budget has remained virtually flat. And to be honest, it was going to go down. And it may yet still, depending on your vote next week. This is the first time, 2013 will be the first time that we ended a fiscal year if things don't go unchanged with a significant shortfall in our budget. I'm concerned when I look at ministries that are going on in the church and and I see ministries that are being rolled back because we simply don't have the volunteers. I'm concerned when I see week after week that our attendance is not what it should be, not because people aren't coming into the church and not because people are leaving the church, but because they're just coming much less frequently. 
I'm concerned by the lack of response. There are things that concern me as a church. Now, I want to say this. I want to say, if you're serving faithfully, if you are giving sacrificially, I am not asking you to do more. I'm not asking you to do more. Because those people, there's something built into them because they are the little engine that could, that says, well, if it needs to happen, it needs to happen here, right? I am not asking you to do more if you are serving faithfully and you are giving sacrificially. But if you are not and you are able to do so, I am not asking you to do so thinking that by doing so you will put God in your debt. I am merely asking you to ask yourself, what does it say about the spiritual temperature in my heart that I'm not willing to give first and best to Him? That I'm not willing to serve even though I am tired? And if you're not giving or serving because you're not able, and I recognize some of you are not able, What I'm asking you to do this morning is just simply to look and say, what needs to change? How can I get out of debt so that I can be a blessing to others? What what can I jettison from my schedule so that I can build the kind of relationships that need to be there, that I can serve God in the ways that I need to be able to serve God? How... Do I get there? See, we've, we've looked at all these three warning signs of, of how to kill your passion or how to kill a church. And I, I am confident of better things of than what God is doing here than that. I, I want to say that to you. I want you to understand from the bottom of my heart, I am not angry. I am not upset. I am not even ultimately worried. God has his hand on us as a body. I just want us to be aware of the danger signs that are there. That a hundred years from now, we're not where the Jewish people were when Christ came. How do I get... So if, if we look at this and we say, okay, we're doing well, but we're not where we need to be. And I see these danger signs. And you see them in your own life and we see them in a, as a church. Then how do we get there? I want you to look just before what I read to you a moment ago. Chapter 3. Verses 6 and 7. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why is he saying this to them? He's saying, It's not that I moved. It's not that I'm different. I am right here. I am the same God that I've always been. I am the same God that spoke from a burning bush. I am the same God that led my people through the Red Sea. I am the same God who sent Jesus Christ. I am the same God who sent down the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost and thousands were saved. I am that same God that saves. But look at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, 
And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This has been a refrain that we've seen throughout the minor prophets, and the people have responded differently. I, I want to invite you, if you would, just turn back uh, just a couple of pages to Zechariah chapter 1, uh, just to where we were last week. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and I promise you I'm almost done. I really am. <laughs> We would see the same refrain. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Now look at their response. So they repented. To repent is to agree with God. To say, God, you're right. I want you, by your mercy, by your grace, by your power, to bring me back into line with where you want me to be. I want to live for your glory. I want to put you first. I want to be what you want me to be. I I want my passion for you to be what it should be. But look at this generation. What is their response? Their response is to say, in a snide way, this is not a serious question. How shall we return? Their point is, God, we are already doing everything for you. What are we to return from? And this is why this is so critical on a morning like this. Outwardly, these people were us. They were the ones that were in church. They were the ones that were serving. They were the ones that were giving. And they looked at their own heart and they said, because we're doing all of these things, there's no need for repentance. God, I'm giving you everything you deserve and more. And God says, but I don't have your heart. Your passion for me is not what it once was. I said to you, I'm not ultimately concerned with what you do on the outside. I'm concerned with your heart because God is ultimately concerned with your heart. You can give in a begrudging or a guilty manner. You can serve in a begrudging or a guilty manner. And it accomplishes nothing. God is not impressed. He says, return to the Lord, repent, rejoice in Him. So here's what I want for you this morning. I want you to devote yourself fully, all that you have and all that you are and all that you will have and all that you will be to the glory of God because nothing else matters and nothing else is eternal. That you would say to God, everything I am, everything I will be, everything I have, everything I will have, it is all yours and it is all for your glory. And I wonder what could happen in a hundred years with a people like that. 